Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and I'm pleased to be with you again. And my co-host, Leah Kaufman, is here, and will tell you a little bit about what we'll hear today in podcast number seven. In this podcast, we'll meet Carolyn Green, Director of the Office of Enterprise Development at the University of Pittsburgh. Ms. Green will explain the economic and philosophical principles of government-funded academic research, why it takes so long to transform research findings into clinical treatments, and how the field of regenerative medicine is faring as an industry. Let's hear that interview now. Joined today by Carolyn Green, who is the founding director of the Office of Enterprise Development Health Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. Carolyn knows a lot about how the field of regenerative medicine might mature or is maturing into a series of viable clinical products, and she's going to talk to us about that today. But there's a lot of backstory to this story. Um, I think it's important, first of all, to know what research is all about. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, why research institutions exist and how they function to bring us new treatments. Okay, um, that's, a, that's a big question, yes. um, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so I, I think, you know, if I, if I were going to think about that question, the question that I might ask is, is why is it that the government is a lot of money into academic research centers? You know, hundreds of millions of dollars are being pumped into academic centers to look into areas of medicine. And, and, and a, a very natural question, I think, is why, why is it that the federal government thinks that's a good idea? And why is it that so many other governments worldwide have emulated uh, the system that we have here in the United States? And it actually goes back to a theory proposed by a learned professor named Vannevar Bush. And Dr. Bush had proposed back in 1943 the idea of what, what he called uh, the reservoir of knowledge theory. And he felt that it was an important natural resource for this country to invest in research in science, engineering, uh, the basic sciences, if you will. And so um, he proposed to the government at the time that if an investment would be made, that it would create a reservoir of knowledge that would fill and grow and eventually spill over. And that spilling over would create new efficiencies in industry, new companies, new jobs, and all of this economic activity would generate new taxes, which in turn would continue to fund the research. So see, he, he saw a cycle, an endless cycle, if you will, of pumping money, information, and research and knowledge that could drive our economy. So, so that theory was accepted, and beginning in 1953, the government in earnest began to fund academic research. So um, there are uh, a number of centers of, uh, of excellence in academic research. Certainly the University of Pittsburgh is among one of the leaders in the world in a number of areas, but we're best known for our research in the health science and for our, our institutes like the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that are really on the cutting edge of what's happening in modern biological and health sciences. So an academic medical center gets most of its funding from the government, some of it from private philanthropy, and it's... And some from industry as well. Uh, okay. And, but usually it's funded on a project-by-project project basis. That's right. So one has to prove the merits of one's idea. It's like there's money in a pile out there for me to walk up to and... And grab my five million and walk away. And if only if there only. were. <laughs> yes. the, the, the system is actually called the peer-reviewed system, 
And the way that it works is that certain agencies of the government, like the National Institute of Health, for example, the NIH, and that's an office that, that has a great deal of funding at the university, so I'll focus on that one. Um, these folks set aside certain amounts of money each year to fund research in institutions. And they issue requests for applications in certain areas of research that the NIH has deemed to be of interest to, uh, to us as a nation. And so in academia, scientists who are in the research stream will respond to those requests from the NIH and write proposal, proposals to receive proposals to receive funding. Most of that funding is aimed at basic or fundamental research, new discoveries, new ideas. A, a, a smaller portion of that is aimed at clinical studies. But for the most part, academic centers are competing with one another for funding and basic research. And those proposals are reviewed not just by governments, but actually by other peer scientists who form review committees, uh, rank and for those proposals, and make decisions about which will be funded. Okay. And then beyond the basic science level, when we get to the preclinical level and, and into the clinical side where we're talking about doing early safety and effectiveness studies in human populations, who pays for those? That's a very good question. I, th I think it's important to recognize the continuum from the basic and, and fundamental research through to the regulatory bodies that our government has also created. So the government's funding the research, but the government also funds regulatory bodies like the FDA who require that anything we want to give to a human being be proved as safety, as safe and, and efficacious. So, so that regulatory body sits fairly far away from the basic research funding that we're receiving, and it takes a lot of money to go from an initial idea to a proven idea to then proving that in a model before you put it in humans, and as you said, that's usually in an animal model, and, and we do that because we want to have a, a fairly good idea that if we do administer it to humans, we're going to do so without, you know, do no harm is, is what we say in medical research. So that movement from idea through to the animal study to initial human study can be a very long and arduous path. Many years, three, four, five, six years is not an uncommon path for a new idea like a medical device, a drug, or a cell therapy to take. And there are funding challenges as you progress through that because traditionally the NIH is interested in funding the discovery of the idea but it has a more difficult time funding the applied work, the animal study. So if you did think to ask for that money in your initial basic science proposal, it's much more difficult to go back later and, and find those funds. Now, there are programs. I don't want you to think the government never funds that because there are programs that do do that. I think the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, has been among the leaders in developmental therapeutics programs, for example, that are trying to give uh, folks access to resources. But that FDA that's sitting at the end of the process has a lot of very strict requirements about not only what we must do, but how we must do it, that we have to do it under very high quality assurance standards. That's not typically what you see in a basic science laboratory. You know, we're academics, we're cutting costs, we're using, for example, research-grade materials. When we start thinking about moving it into humans or even in animals, we need 
clinical grade materials that have been manufactured under extremely high quality assurance and quality control conditions. And that means cost and expense. So clinical grade materials could cost hundreds of times what research grade materials do. So it's very challenging for the government to continue to fund that. So often we're looking to others to help us bridge that gap. Industry partners, philanthropists, um, folks in the economic development sector that might be interested in helping us translate a discovery into humans as the basis perhaps uh, for a new company, something that can create jobs and, and drive the economy. So at that point, though, I imagine an, an, an industry partner or a venture capitalist would need to see or be convinced of the usefulness of this science before investing in it as a product. And granted, science should be, the data speaks for itself and it should be demonstrable. But if you can't, if you're a scientist and you can't convince somebody of your vision, you may have trouble then moving this beyond a certain stage. It can be very challenging for the scientist to begin to look at their work through the eyes of a potential business investor. Well, the scientist examines scientific merit the business analyst examines business risk. So it all boils down to his desire, the business investor's desire, to minimize risk. And the closer you are to meeting those FDA regulatory hurdles, the more interested the business investor becomes because he perceives there to be less risk. So let, let's, let's think about an example. Um, a drug or a device that goes through the clinical trial phases, as you said, moves into an animal model or preclinical phase, has to undergo an analysis to show that it can be safely used in animal models and that perhaps it, it actually uh, is useful toward retarding the disease that it's, that it's attempted and aimed at. But once we establish the use of, of a drug, for example, in humans, we've greatly reduced the risk. We can show that we can administer it to humans and do no harm, that risk is diminished. Many drugs never make it past that point. That's called a phase one clinical trial. And, and the, the rate of failure at that point is exceptionally high. The next step is a phase two study, where now you administer it to more patients, not just five or 10 healthy patients, as in a phase one trial, but hundreds of patients in a phase two trial. And those patients actually have the disease that you're targeting. So now we're looking to see not only is it continue to be shown safe, but does it actually have any efficacy? Is it, is it curing or at least retarding the progress of the disease that we're aiming at? And so making it through a phase two study reduces the risk that much more. The risk being whether or not it will work if I actually get a license from the FDA to go ahead and sell this product. So at each phase, phase one, phase two, and ultimately phase three, where we'll treat thousands of patients with the disease and try to show longer-term safety and efficacy, each one of those phases reduces the risk from a business um, perspective. So when I'm back in academia with my idea, just beginning my animal studies, the amount of risk that a business investor perceives is enormous, and in fact, pretty much overwhelmingly enormous for the business investor. They simply cannot uh, take that level of risk with business investment dollars. They want to know that you've completed your animal studies. And in fact, in today's market, they're really looking for you to be at phase two clinical human studies before they consider it to be a more solid, still very risky, but more solid business investment. So what we end up with is an enormous gap between 
hundreds millions of federal dollars that are going into research and spawning discoveries and the number of those discoveries that can actually make it into the business world. And that gulf is complicated by a lack of funding and a lack of understanding of how the people on the business side are viewing what's happening on the academic side. And that's what my office was created to try to bridge. So you're translating the two interests and concerns and helping these people get to the center. Now, if an academic medical center is essentially only having its costs covered by federal grants, why in the world are they in the business of research? <laughs> well, because research provides not only new discoveries, as we've talked about, but it's actually more fundamental to the academic mission because it provides the education of students, it provides publications that enhance a body of knowledge in a given area of science, and those activities go to the very fundamental core of the academic mission. Academic medical centers are responsible for training new scientists and new physicians in the field, and so all of this work gives us the ability to do that education of those students. And fundamentally, that's our primary mission. So we want to do the research because we see it as the instrumental tool in progressing the body of knowledge. In academia, the outcome of new ideas and products that might end up in companies is almost an accidental or incidental <laughs> event as a result of the research. Because in academia, doing research that has a negative result is viewed just as good an endeavor as research that has a positive result. It's, it's our job to answer the fundamental question. And if the answer happens to be yes, and we've found a really great piece of science that might also be an, an interesting product or service that could improve the human condition. Now translating that becomes a challenge because in academia we don't have the resources. We are a nonprofit, so we can't operate at FDA-required levels of quality all the time in all areas. Now we may have centers that do that very well, um, and in fact here at the University of Pittsburgh we use several of those. But some areas of science are very new. And regenerative medicine certainly falls into that category. This is a new frontier in science that is encompassing new methods and techniques that frankly confuse the FDA in many respects. They have a difficult time understanding brand new scientific fields because regulatory bodies tend to base their decisions on historical information. And we don't have a lot of that in the world of regenerative medicine. You know, it wasn't that long ago that um, that we didn't even do transplantation of organs. Now in regenerative medicine, we're talking about creating bioreactors from human cells or possibly growing entire new organs or replacement tissue. This is a very new field for the regulatory bodies, and they have a, a challenging time understanding how to regulate it. And so from the investor world, that means increased risk. And so helping the FDA to put regulations in place that help reduce that risk has been an important step forward in making sure that the science can advance to become new products. And the FDA has made many strides along those lines in the last even just 10 years. So it sounds like scientists are not only performing the research that, that produce new products and new treatments, but on the policy side, I imagine there's people who can be active researchers and at the same time be helping to advise a group like the FDA of how to, how to deal with this new paradigm. 
Very much That's so. That's interesting. And you know, an, an important aspect of what happens at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine is that we focus on teams, teams that include not only scientists, but the all-important physician as well. Because that, that clinical perspective and understanding of how it actually would be utilized in a medical setting provides us with a much better ability to translate our ideas into products. So um, unlike um, most academic centers where everything is organized around a specific department, a scientific body of knowledge, if you will. The McGowan Institute turns that on its side and says, let's take a variety of people with all types of expertise. We want basic scientists, biologists, um, molecular biologists, geneticists, proteomists, with clinicians and epidemiologists. We want to pair them all together so that we really can think about moving the science from its fundamental discovery into a useful, translatable clinical application. And then beside that comes my office that's worried about all the business issues. Have we protected the intellectual property? Are we planning for the value proposition creation as we move forward? Because ultimately, no matter how far we take it at the McGowan Institute, we're never going to be the manufacturer of the ultimate product. So we've got to create it in such a way that builds commercial value so that we can hand it off to a partner, so that they can see that value. We've taken enough risk out of it that they're willing to invest their monies that, that uh, hurdles that the FDA uh, will, will continue to, to present. So we're seeing this. We've heard about this new multidisciplinary continuum from a lot of our interviewees, really from all over the country, it seems to be one of the hallmarks of regenerative medicine in general. Absolutely. And it's what, what makes regenerative medicine possible because it does require all disciplines and a, a thinking about science in a very different way. What I'm wondering is if alongside that, there's with, with federal research dollars being cut more and more all the time, do you, looking into the future, see a new model of funding emerging? That's a challenging question. I'm not sure that I'm the best forecaster of what's going to happen. I, I tend to live in the here and the now and, and uh, are less likely to, uh, to try to prognosticate what might happen. But I think that uh, thing that I see as a, a way to try to increase the ability of funds that we would have here at the institution would be to find more ways to partner earlier and more closely with industry to try to help mitigate their risks by working closely with us and bringing them into the opportunity earlier and earlier in the development pipeline. So that, that will help us to bridge the gaps and hopefully to supplement what is a, a great challenge for our government, which would be to fund the entire continuum, which I think it's unrealistic to think that's going to happen. So as we, we've defined how this procedure works, are there regenerative medicine products currently on the market that we can look to as successes? There absolutely are. Good. Um, so regenerative medicine, as, as it's been defined here at the University of Pittsburgh, is, is, a, is a pretty broad subject. But there are certainly examples of, of FDA-approved and clinically utilized products many of which have been developed by folks right here at the McGowan Institute. So I think probably the most shining example is our own Steve Badalak mm -hmm. here at the McGowan Institute. You know, Steve was the first uh, to discover the use of, of porcine intestine and porcine bladder as a scaffold structure for the development of new cells and tissues. And those have been translated successfully through corporate partners are sold in the common marketplace and are actually in millions of patients worldwide. 
So it was a, a fascinating discovery for Steve, and he was very smart. He protected the intellectual property, he worked with industry partners, and he made sure that it advanced into a translated saleable product. That's, that's a huge hurdle, and he's certainly to be commended for that. And I'd like our listeners to know, many of whom have already heard from Stephen Badalak in a previous podcast, that he's hinted at some new work that he wants to tell us about. So stay tuned, because I think we're going to have Dr. Badalak back in the near future to tell us about more exciting stuff. So is regenerative medicine yet an industry? That's that's available for debate. I think if I were to put on my, take off my academic hat and put on my industry or even venture capital hat, I think most folks in the venture capital industry are taking a wait-and-see attitude. There are not very many venture-backed companies that would label themselves as regenerative medicine companies. We are seeing more and more companies interested in cell therapy. Um, we are seeing more uh, dev- device cell combination types of products, and those certainly lend themselves to regenerative medicine. Um, and so, so to the extent that, um, for example, our own uh, Michael Chancellor has been involved in the use of, of adult muscle-derived stem cells as a replacement therapy for muscles that have deteriorated, for example, for urinary bladder incontinence. That's a regenerative medicine. He's helping to medicine. He's helping to regrow a muscle that was no longer there. Uh, Dr. Meet Patel, who I think may have also been part of a podcast here, is also using adult muscle-derived stem cells to improve cardiac heart muscle. So, these are uh, technologies that are in the process of translation. But the venture community is not yet throwing billions of dollars at this industry. They're waiting for more evidence that the risk is mitigated and the effectiveness is worth investing in. Well, and, you know, like. venture capitalists are a lot like the proverbial lemming. <laughs> uh, if we, they see a success in industry, they'll all run after it. And unfortunately, there have been a few very well-known unsuccessful regenerative medicine companies who, for a variety of reasons, invested in products that made it through the regulatory hurdles into the marketplace and then weren't adopted. So I think in, in some cases they were solving problems that maybe weren't as pressing for the medical community. So, so millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars were invested in getting through the difficult FDA challenges, which quite frankly have paved the way now for some of the rest of us to come through, but that were not a commercial success. And so the venture community becomes a bit more skeptical, a bit more hesitant, and I think that institutes like the McGowan Institute and its groundbreaking uh, retreat that was held just last month, where industry was not only invited but encouraged to engage with our scientists and to feed back about what they need to see regenerative medicine become a commercial success. This type of engagement with industry is what is, is spawning the growth of an industry that has been stalled for a good 10 years now. Um, Dr. Mao, who joined us a few weeks ago, is involved in policy making to, I guess, make up for that, what he calls a rational exuberance of the early period in regenerative medicine that yes. you've really just described, where um, products were uh, invested in that didn't bear fruit. Well, we thought um, a lot about science. We forgot to think about some basic business principles like marketing. And yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just fascinating to me how this is all coming full circle, um, and I, I hope our listeners are getting this really now they're, they're getting the really big picture, I think, of what's going on in regenerative medicine. Um, is the field of regener- regenerative medicine contributing 
in a meaningful way t to the nation's economy or the world economy even because there's people you know performing these disciplines all over the place um, I would say the answer to that is a resounding yes because research as a whole contributes enormously to our economy so while we would like to see thousands of companies turning out regenerative medicine products and, and we will get there even at this point in time, regenerative medicine contributes enormously to the economy. So, so the business of academic research is growing healthy, strong, and here at the University of Pittsburgh, it's responsible for more than $600 million of activity. And for every research dollar that we have, another $5 is pumping through the economy. So here in the Pittsburgh region, regenerative medicine and health science as a whole has an enormous economic impact. So it's not just that the money comes in to the to a big academic medical center, the research dollars, and gets um, consumed by laboratory, you know, pipettes and petri dishes and the occasional salary for the occasional bottle washer and investigator here and there. But rather, um, it's generating. You know, people are making meaningful salaries that they're then going out into the the neighborhood and and dropping on. Consumer items, is that what you mean by $1 I, equals 5? It's, it's absolutely true. So it's not only in salaries, but every time we hire a new scientist, they're bringing with them oftentimes a spouse and family member who increase the population of this and who also become employed here. And yes, we're consuming reagents and pipettes, and somebody manufactures those <laughs> and supplies them to us. Somebody sells them to us. So there's an enormous uh, chain of activity that occurs at an academic research center. And Pennsylvania as a state is very blessed to have a very strong and active medical research economy. Beyond the economic gains, the federal money that goes into an academic medical center is actually coming out of my pocket in your pocket. I mean, they're tax dollars, right? That's right. So, so what sort of obligation does a medical center that's conducting research have you know, over my money or with so, my money. <laughs> so we, we have more than just a moral obligation to, uh, to do well with public dollars. Our obligation is actually rooted in federal law. So um, I mentioned before Vannevar Bush's theory mm -hmm. and, and his funding theory. Well, long about 1979, there was a study that was done that noticed that even though the government was pumping a lot of money into research, the reality was many of the ideas, 28,000 patents had been filed, and only 5% of them were in the hands of industry being further developed. So two of our senators who were um, very interested in that statistic, Senator Bai and Senator Dole, got together and proposed what has been described as the most enlightened piece of legislation of the 20th century. And, and their act uh, jointly had become known as the Bai-Dole Act, passed in 1980. That piece of legislation um, did something that was groundbreaking at the time, which has become a standard practice, and it gave the rights for newly developed ideas that had come from federal money, not just to the federal government, but pushed them down to the body who had received the funding. So every small business and every academic medical center was able to, um, to take uh, uh, ownership of those discoveries is required to file patents around those discoveries and to affect in its agreements a, a good due diligence to try to make sure that those products are pushed out into industry. So, so that piece of legislation, I think, basically said that in the United States, we view intellectual property and creativity as a natural resource, and that as the stewards of public money, we have a duty, a duty of care 
uh, to make sure that those monies are uh, being uh, used as advantageously as possible to help improve people's lives and to help improve the economy. Excellent. Is there anything that we've missed in talking about these things today? Well, just that I, you know, I think this is a fascinating field and for our listeners out there who perhaps haven't looked into uh, the interface between academia and industry, um, it's a fascinating space. It's certainly a career worth considering if you have an interest in both sides of the coin. And I'd encourage folks to look into organizations like Autumn, the Association of University Technology Managers, and the Licensing Executive Society as places where you can learn more about the business of academic research. We'll link to those organizations from our site. Terrific. I want to thank you for joining us today. We've learned a lot. Thanks very much. Thanks, Leah. For more information about the University of Pittsburgh Office of Enterprise Development, please see the link at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Leah, can you tell us about our next podcast, please? Next, we'll talk with Dr. Van Mao, who helped to found the field of regenerative medicine, helped to solidify the field after a difficult adolescence in the 1990s, and who helps to guide it to this day. That's podcast number eight, coming to you in early May. Thank you, Leah. And let me remind our listeners, if you have ideas for future podcasts or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. As a reminder, we can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions and feedback. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnosis or medical advice. We hope that you'll stay subscribed to the RSS Five of this podcast at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And we look forward to returning in several weeks with another exciting interview. Thank you.